Good day there, guys, and welcome back to the Blowing Cartridges podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Zach Clark, and as always, joined by my fellow co-host, Brendan Tam. Brendan, how are you doing on this lovely afternoon? I'm going really well, Zach. It's a nice, sunny Sunday afternoon where, well, when while we're recording. It's probably not going to go up on a Sunday afternoon, of course, but we're definitely heading into <laughs> summer, great weather, and it's a good time of year when you can get people together and play games with them, isn't it? And we're starting to open up, lockdowns are receding, uh, Mr. Dan Andrews is starting to announce we're allowed to actually do things again, so everything's on the up and up. Yeah, 100%. I mean, between the announcements that we're going to have guests over to the home soon um, at the time of recording, and also like last week we had PAX Online Australia, um, it's got my itch for board games is at an all-time you know high after almost two years of virtually no in-person gaming sessions, um, which is which is what our topic is about, board games, a bit different to uh, to video games, um, but it's sort of related and we'll touch on that during the, the chat. Uh, but luckily, we have uh, an distinguished guest, not distinguished, distinguished guest, <laughs> one of our you know friends that we've met along our, our gaming journeys throughout the years, uh, and that is uh, QC. So QC, do you want to say hello? <laughs> Hi, I am QC, that he's me. Yes, our our resident board game aficionado. Hoarder, hoarder I think is the word. <laughs> yeah, no, as, uh, so for context, um, QC, you're not only a bit of a video game collector like Brendan and myself, but uh, probably what, in the last, when do you reckon, 10, 15 years ago, you started a board game sort of collection as well, and that's grown to a reasonable size to say the least? Uh, I think it was, it, I think it was only about, uh, six, seven years ago, it was at uh, it, it was after a PAX. It was after the second PAX, I'd say. So I reckon that would only be... 2014 then, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that was it. Yeah, I reckon that's a similar time to when I probably became more in tune with board games. I mean, certainly, I think going to uni uh, opened my eyes up to the world of board games and seeing more things that weren't Monopoly and... Um, and uh, you know, trouble and that kind of stuff being played in the in the halls. But yeah, packs at least here in Australia and probably elsewhere, it's been a real um, eye opener. You know, if anyone hasn't been to a packs, it's it's obviously got a large video game component. I'd say you know, majority video games still, but a not insignificant board game you know section and ever growing section. I would say, uh, and it's certainly become a gateway for many people I know to get into to that realm of, of gaming if, if, you know, they hadn't already previously. Uh, and just quickly to clarify it, I'm going to use the word board game a lot, uh, but by that I really just mean tabletop games mm-hmm. of all kinds, just for those that are being, you know, nitpicky. So, I mean, you know, if you play with cards, if you've just got a, a Dungeon & Dragons rule book and some dice, uh, or you actually have a board and some, you know, actual, you know, uh, meeple or something that you're moving around, you know, all the same thing I'm using a bit interchangeably. So apologies for anyone that gets uh, a bit uh, finicky about the classifications. But yeah, uh, Brendan, what about yourself? Have you, are you much of a board game player? or And if so, when did you sort of, you know, start giving the dice a roll? Well, if we're, um, if we're brought in the topic up and we're talking about tabletop as well, I think my journey would have started with war gaming and Warhammer or plastic crack, as I like to call it, with some of my friends who are <laughs> also fellow, I guess, survivors of the Warhammer addiction. I think it was... I was quite young, actually. I would have been only about seven, eight or nine around that period of my life, but I had a friend who was a bit older than me. My brother was a friend with his older brother, so we kind of connected that way, even though he was... Oh, he would have been about 
three years older than me at the time, and him and his older brother were really getting into Warhammer. My brother had some other friends who really got into Warhammer. He himself never really did, but I got bit by the bug, and I collected a lot of Space Marines, Warhammer Fantasy, learned to paint, learned some rudimentaries how to play the game, um, got some of my also similarly aged friends from school into Warhammer and a few of us had some figures and we kind of tried to play during lunchtime at in primary school even though we didn't really follow the rules of Warhammer 40k or fantasy or whatever we were having a go at we'd just sort of mash figures together and roll dice and play that way so the sort of a bastardized version of that so I'd say that was my first exposure to tabletop gaming outside and gaming outside of video games but as I went through high school, got towards the end of high school, uh, Games Workshop, as many people know, are a very predatory company. They like to constantly increase their prices. They like to change the <laughs> rules of the games just to elicit more people to purchase more models. And oh, now like you have to have these super awesome figures and you need to pay X amount for them because we're going to just crack down on all alternate channels on how to buy our products. So even when for it, Briefly, you could purchase Warhammer from the UK and it would be cheaper than purchasing in Australia, even with the shipping because of a range of things like postage wasn't expensive, currency was favourable. But they quickly cracked down on that because they realised a lot of people were doing that. And it just got to the point when they killed Warhammer Fantasy Battle. It sounds like they're about to revive it about five, six years later, but they killed that and I just got a bit disillusioned and got to the point where I decided, well, I, I really can't keep on spending money on this hobby because it's a very expensive one. So I, I always p- maintained my interest in video games during that period, as I've discussed on previous episodes. And about the time I started um, uni, which would have been about that 2014 point that you guys discussed earlier, uh, I, I noticed a lot of my friends were getting into board games a lot more than video games. There's a lot of friends that I, I was playing video games with during high school online when we went over to each other's places etc and I noticed they really started getting into board games I kind of missed that jump in that I I noticed in the periphery some one in particular really got into board games bought a lot of them they'd always talk about sessions they'd have with other friends that I was kind of I kind of knew but wasn't really in those like groups there was different groups that overlapped each other like in a lot of friendship groups and it was really only in the last I'd say four years or so I started getting a bit more into board games like playing when the opportunity arose so I wouldn't say I'm a big board game collector or big board game player like the two of you are but I'm definitely a big fan of board games and I definitely do dust one off and play it when the opportunity arises. I mean you touched on it's an interesting point that we all sort of reckon we converged around that sort of maybe 2013 14 maybe 15 period um i mean maybe largely driven by stuff like packs but i think it's fair to say that board games have had a bit of a renaissance you know i mean obviously before video games existed they were the only option <laughs> you could only play board games if you were playing games of that nature at all um but now you know since the invention of video games they, they've sort of slow they, they for a while they felt like they took a back seat you know i know certain things warhammer dungeon dragons uh, obviously, even like the really common ones like in Monopoly, et cetera, have always had a constant presence. But it's I think it'd be hard to argue that the industry as it is hasn't seen a bit of a, a boom in the last, you know, what, maybe 10 years. I don't know, QC, you might have a bit more uh, knowledge than I do around when it probably kicked off or 
the levels at which it's sort of grown in the last again seven or so years. I don't know if you you have that perspective or if I'm just assuming you will. <laughs> so I think they've you know they, I think they've often existed in different spaces. Um, is my feeling. Uh, so mm. looking at board games, they've the, those designer board games that we that we're talking about, um, as opposed to like the mass market ones that we all grew up with. Um, I think they have. They they've definitely been a lot becoming a lot more mainstream in the last few years. So if you look at the games that people play, uh, a lot of them are still classics, and those you know that and a lot of them have come up through the last few decades um, and are still in print now. But we're seeing a whole lot more of them. We're seeing them played a lot more. I think a lot of that is them being brought into the same spaces through those conventions, but also through you know the internet and. I'd say even things like, you know, podcasts and YouTube and people talking about their hobbies because you see all these celebrities these days who are playing board games or D&D or you know, any other kind of tabletop games and those weren't things people really talked about. So just the way that it's being brought into the mainstream through uh, you know, media, things like, I don't know, even the, the Big Bang Theory, I think brought a lot of those traditionally nerdy pastimes uh, into you know the the mainstream discourse, so I mean it was, so Zach it was it was actually you who got me into board games. Yeah, I know. Ironically, <laughs> so I played tabletop games before. Then you know I'd been a TCG player, and I'd played board games with with, with friends at uni, but they weren't really something that I thought about as a thing. And it wasn't until until that PAX um, where they did have quite a large tabletop area that year compared to the previous year you know and where you know zach said hey let's play this game it wasn't until then that it really kind of struck me as something that was more than that so even though i was aware of the existence of you know these non-monopoly board games and i played them and played them quite regularly it was still just the same handful of games that were sitting around in the club room and when i started seeing more of them yeah, you, you start seeing them and then you go and look them up and it kind of just cascades from there. And so I think there's really two parts to it. One of them is this thing where it's just becoming, where it's just showing up in the mainstream more through all kinds of paths, you know, whether that's through uh, conventions or through media or through word of mouth um, or anything else. And also, and, you know, and these days, I guess, with lockdowns and looking people looking to get away from the screen a bit more as well. But the other th- the other big thing, I think, in terms of uh, the explosion is Kickstarter and crowdfunding. Mm-hmm. So, you know, where board games were previously, you know, very much the main of publishers, um, and, you know, big publishers, so there's always been smaller ones, but you didn't know about them. Like people, if, unless you already were deep into the hobby, you weren't going to find these games that were um, done by, you know, indie publishers or by one person just making the game. Kickstarter um, has really brought those things to the forefront. So I don't really follow video game Kickstarters a lot. I have, in fact, a few, and I found that they um, didn't give me as much joy without having all the mm. physical goodies. Yeah. But board games, um, they're huge in Kickstarter. They're, in fact, they're so big that there are now uh, multiple crowdfunding sites just for, like, they have been started for board games, just for the board game industry to really cater to what they need and what people want from them and i think just um having that uh having that method to put these ideas in front of people and get them excited about it 
um, it's kind of this, you know, it's, it's this cycle um, that just encourages more and more and people who before might have thought about a game and kind of, you know, like scribbled ideas down but never really done much about it, may have shown their friends, are now thinking um, I could get this in front of people. And some games are just really exploding popularity, a little bit like um, how, you know, the advent of indie video games, I think, has been really good for letting, you know, single developers try out their ideas and show them to people. Yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, I mean, it's sort of a really interesting way to see how board games thrive in Kickstarter land slash other crowdfunding, of course. Um, whereas video games have a bit more of a rocky, I think, relationship with the, the crowdfunding mm-hmm. space. Obviously, there are successes. Undertale is a big one. Uh, and then there are ones that are, you know, not as big successes. Money number nine, for example. Um, and then probably a lot more that we don't hear about that just never come out. I've certainly... Uh, back in that the early days of Kickstarter for video games, put some you know five bucks down on a game that is yet to materialize, to say the least. Um, and I think a largely probably driven by the design process, right? Where a lot of the times Kickstarters for video games are coming in at the concept phase, saying, "Hey, help fund my life while I develop this into an actual thing." Whereas a lot of board game Kickstarters that I've seen, at least, the game's already designed uh, and a prototype may. But, not be made but usually has been uh, and play tested you know to the best it can at you know local conventions or whatever the (laughs) designer has access to uh at minimum their friends i would have thought uh so it's a lot more like hey this product exists it's proven as a thing that i know some people at least enjoy i just need you to ship you know foot the bill for manufacturing and distribution um and it's a lot more firm in terms of the numbers versus a say three or four year development cycle where you think you're going to finish your, your video game in say three years and up now you, you get to the end of the three years, you've run out of your cash that you kickstarted and you need another one or two years to actually get it over the line, which is where a lot of those issues arise. So, you know, board games just lend themselves much better to the crowdfunding model in my mind than, yeah, than video games. I think an important part of that is it does seem to be, as you mentioned, a lot less speculative that, for video games, a lot of them, not only does it sometimes feel like, am I actually going to get this game or not? Will it actually be finished? And for board games, you can see videos where they play tested the board game idea. They'll have mock-ups and they'll say, oh, we, we need this money so we can get this into full production and get it to you guys. I think the other part of it is it does feel like, I don't know if it's just a perception viewpoint thing, but it does feel like less of a, pre-order when you're backing a board game than a video game for whatever especially for those bigger publishers that have crowdfunded video games it sometimes does feel like oh you're giving them your 30 dollars so you you'll get the game when it comes out it might be good it might be bad it probably will come out because well it's a a notable developer they've got a couple of million now from this they'll get money from external publishers or bodies as well so they'll probably get it out whereas a lot of board game kickstarters is generally there's less of that influence of oh this is going to get made anyway oh they, they, they they'll just be able to get a konami or ubisoft to give them money as well and they are doing this kickstarter so they can show these publishers that oh people are interested in our game there's definitely going to be a market for it whereas there's definitely that feeling for board game kickstarters that you're actually contributing to the process you're helping breathe life into this and you will yes there's always going to be cases where you don't get the board game 
but in the in many cases you'll definitely get that game at the end of the journey the, the kickstarter journey and i think that's why board games as qc rightly said is what very much started that kickstarter phenomenon and i think that's very much why it's been able to maintain it whereas video games for a large part yes there's still kickstarters every week every month they get backed on kickstarter for video games but there was very much that peak in that like 2013 14 15 period that's now since disappeared there's i think with the, you know with the small companies funding board games and kickstarter there is you know there there, ha- there are definitely large companies large publishers that funds games on kickstarter as well and you know companies that could definitely afford to do them themselves but what you see in the community is often a backlash against that as well so mm-hmm. um and i don't know if there's as much of a backlash um with video games when video game publishers put their um their things on kickstarter but there are a few companies that you know we've seen treat kickstarter much like pre-orders and there's there's always going to be people who fund them but at the same time there's a lot of people who you know who see that and speak out against it and so i think the you know the community around board game crowdfunding kind of has a different feel there's the there's definitely this idea now of having your better product to show again there's definitely been cases where people say i have this great idea uh please help me fund it i haven't developed it yet and they just can get funded because uh there's nothing to show yet and i think board gamers are really hungry to see that you know this game will work and you know they put people put the effort into it already and it does something different and yeah you really do have that opportunity to say okay well i've already worked in this game and i just wonder too um you know whether there's still this idea that designing board games is a hobby rather than a full-time job because if you think about people trying to fund full-time salaries for people um, for developers on video games versus you know tr- just trying to fund the actual manufacturing uh, and you know, assets um, and you know the physical uh, you know, the, the, the physical part of it for board games it feels a bit more like what Kickstarter and crowdfunding was made for but it also feels like something that maybe if you know if, if that if that designing process were a full-time job you know would that be sustainable in the long run how would they you know would they have to fund eventually the salaries to work through that design process before putting anything up you know on in a campaign you know I, but i think yeah it's that's very true and uh, i think in some ways you know the the as you said the community around board game crowdfunding is a bit more savvy than the ones that are again the video game ones i feel like they get a lot more attention like if it's a big game from your Kotaku's and whatever, but it draws in a lot of people that don't really get or understand the risks involved with, with a Kickstarter. Whereas um, I think people who are paying attention to that board game crowdfunding space, more of them are in the know. They know what to look out for. They know the red flags. They understand that if someone's going, you know, just, Hey, here's my concept. I mean, um, I can only speak as a very amateur, you know, I'm not, you know, I've, I've, like anyone in a hobby field of try to think, can I make a board game? You come up with an idea uh, and that idea can quickly evolve and change quite rapidly in the process. Cause you think something will be fun and it's not, or you think this concept will uh, work, but it doesn't. Uh, and then eventually the game you thought or maybe would have pitched at the start of your process could be quite different to the end product. 
Uh, so yeah, knowing that you've you've seen it played, you get the rules. It's it's clearly a, a fully defined and you know pretty much complete game that just needs manufacturing is a big selling point I think to those looking to back, especially when there are so many that are at that point on Kickstarter. Why would you pick a riskier position of of something that's not even you know in prototype phase before you um before you fund it? Uh, and then as you, your your point about the hobbyist field, that's also really fascinating because I, I watched a panel at PAX this last weekend about how do we build the industry, you know, in Australia. And yeah, there's definitely an element of like, it's hard to be a full-time board game designer, (laughs) um, particularly here in Australia. It's just, you know, most people are doing it as a side thing to their their full-time job. And maybe, I don't know if they're lucky and they, they have a super big hit in their hands and make a ton of money, they can they can then quit that job and then start a company or, you know, work for the publisher or whatever it might be. But certainly there's, there doesn't seem to be many people taking the, yeah, fund my lifestyle for a year while I um, spend all my efforts on making this the best thing, you know, I possibly can. Which I imagine just creates this big lag between, you know, concept to completion phase because, I, you know, it must be very challenging for someone who is trying to, you know, put out a product to find the time to think about it to test it, uh, to attend conventions and, and sort of, you know, not only from a marketing perspective, but just to broaden your, your play tester base. Cause, um, and we can touch on this in a bit, but it's, it's can be a bit, you know, in the past it was challenging to do that virtually. It's a bit different now, but we'll, again, we'll get to that later. And I wonder, you know, what would happen if we sort of managed to build a bit more of an industry around it, have some companies that could fund designers to full-time prototype and come up with new ideas versus, you know, publishers that just pick it up once it's, you know, proven in some capacity or they, you know, go to Gen Con or PAX or whatever and they see it prototyped and they, they then say, hey, we'll take you the rest of the way. Absolutely. Kind of I know, so I, I know designers who have been working on one design for a decade. Yeah, and, and often you'll meet someone at a convention and they'll design a game, you know, chat them about design and, and you, you ask them, you know, what do you do? Because the assumption is that being a board game designer isn't going to be your full-time job. And I think, you know, and, and there are very, very, very few designers in the world who can say that they do that full time because um, until you know, you've got, un- unless you are those very, very big names who, who has a whole ton of hits under your belt, no one is, you know, no, no one is funding you to do that full time. And you, you know, and, and, and so once, you know, once you have managed to get a publisher to accept your, um, your design, you can kind of pass it off to them a lot. Um, and you know they will fund the developments and the art and you know extra play testing and marketing getting it out but until then that's it's 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 just you know that, that's it's all on you i have friends who have you know who have designed multiple board games and had multiple games published and yet you know a new game they will spend they have a full time job and they'll spend their spare time and weekends designing and play testing whatever new ideas they have in the hope that one's going to be, you know, the next one that they get picked up. Despite being a more mature industry in some respects to, again, video games, it does feel like it's in a much different space. Because even when you think about big publishers, right, their their size in comparison to something like a an EA or an Activision or a Sony is, is, is quite different. I mean, there's a couple that obviously rival them, um, but it, they're usually ones I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, 
I'm only looking at this at a glance, but I think the big ones are things like Games Workshop, <laughs> obviously with Warhammer. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- and I think um, Wizards of the Coast with Magic the Gathering and Dungeons and Dragons. Um, they've got a ton of money and an entire process around them, but but also are very much focused in on their, their cash cows um, rather than, you know, going out and funding independent board games on the side or anything like that. And then, I, you know, there are other publishers that I see a lot, you know, um, like Ravensburg and that kind of stuff. And they're probably, you know, of a good enough size, but they're, they're, they definitely probably, oh, I haven't looked at their numbers, so I shouldn't speak so definitively, but, you know, they're not, they're not like the same level as like an EA or an Activision, which are some of the biggest companies in America, um, let alone um, the world, I suppose. Um, it's inherently a much more expensive industry to be running in because it's physical. So when you yes. have, you know, when, when you make a video game, you put all the, you, know, you put your resources and put your money into its development. But once it's developed, if you've got something, you know, if you've got something good, if you've got a hit, it's basically always a hit. Um, and production of, you know, getting it out to people is easy. You can just do it via downloads these days. So it's even easier than it used to be. But, you know, putting things out physically, it's the same thing. It's, you know, it's, it's putting data onto a disc. Uh, onto a t- cartridge, uh, it's the distribution is much easier. Easier, it's small. With board games, you know, often the development time is is a lot shorter, and the development resources you need to put into it a lot you know, less. Um, you don't need a team of a hundred programmers all working on the same thing. But part of it is that you have to produce the board games and all the logistics um, associated with that. And one thing that has come up recently is shipping. Um, and obviously, so we know about the pandemic causing uh, shipping costs to go way up because there are no containers uh, for to be loaded onto containers. There are no empty containers to be loaded onto container ships. And so it's become really, really expensive to get your goods onto a ship to bring it to, you know, from, from the place of manufacturing to wherever you want to be. So going back to the crowdfunding thing, there are a bunch of games that were, a bunch of board games that were funded a year or two ago and they had quoted, you know, they had had certain quotes for shipping at the time and so that's what they'd quoted for, that's what they planned on for their funding targets, uh, both for just making the, you know, making the games and getting them out to where they need to go out from in the first place, but also shipping two backers and those prices have just gone up by you know by incredible incredible amounts and it's sending companies bankrupt board game companies like you said tend to be pretty small and a lot of them aren't operating on you know huge reserves of cash or huge margins and this kind of change can really affect them so we have seen um, a few board game companies already just either unable to fulfill their so, no, so both kickstarters but um, also just regular retail they are unable to get their unable to get their already manufactured games into the hands of the people who want to buy them because they can't get them out of China for example where they've been manufactured so yeah so they've been delaying their delivery or they've just gone bankrupt because they've tried to pay for the shipping and haven't been able to or they've accepted they can't afford to pay for their shipping and all they can do is just wait until things settle down and they can get their things out. And so that's a problem in itself. But the other problem 
that we've seen in the board gaming world is that, yeah, as you said, there are lots and lots of, like, you know, there's this huge surge in the number of games coming out. And there's this thing about the cult of the new, because you can only play so many games, and people get really excited about whatever the new hotness is. So there was, you know, there's, there's, there was an interesting discussion by a publisher recently online where they explained that they make, you know, they, they have a new game and they don't know how well it will do. So they make, you know, they make an estimate and they say print this many copies and the game comes out and, you know, it gets good reviews. Maybe a big YouTube channel picks it up and, and you know, and reviews it well. And everyone suddenly really wants it. And it sells out. And the publisher says, great, you know, the first run sold out. We're going to put in an order for another bigger run. By the time that, you know, by the time they've got factory time, you know, they, they put in the order, it's gone through the factory, you know, it's finally, it's, it's waited for the factory time, it's finally gone through the factory, uh, it's, um, you know, it's loaded in containers, even in normal times um, when there's no delay. You know, it's loaded onto a container, it's shipped to the warehouses in other countries. And by that time, it's a few months later and the community's moved on. There's a new hotness. No one's interested in this one anymore. And so the publisher is now stuck with a really large run of games that is selling slowly because they thought it was going to sell really fast because the first run sold really fast, but everyone's focused on the next big thing now. I think a big issue with that is the diff- well we've been talking about differences between board games and video games and one of those big differences is I think you see that phenomenon a lot for video games in terms of multiplayer online video games as in there's always what's popular sometimes will last longer than others like Fortnite I assume is still popular but there's other ones that have come and gone between that time actually many that have come and gone between the time Fortnite first hit the scene and where we are now but there's many other video games that can get kickstarted, video games that developers can put out that are single-player experiences in that it doesn't really matter that no one else is talking about this game anymore. You can still, you'll probably still hear about it now and then. You can go play it. You can enjoy it on your own. Whereas board games, as you described, it is very much, well, the majority of the board games we're talking about are those multiplayer experiences. And you're going to have to convince people you play with, your your friends, your board game group that are, oh, we need. We should play this game instead of that. Instead of this new hot one that just came out that we all want to try. Or I oh, remember that game we played a session of uh, like two, three, four, five, six months ago. Oh, I finally have a copy. Let's play it again. Sometimes people will want to. Sometimes they'll say, "Oh, it was fun, but I prefer X, Y, Z. Let's play that instead." So there, there is that dynamic at work that I think does make it di- a lot more difficult for board game publishers and makers to. I guess, have that one game that just continues selling or to know that their new game is going to have that life when it can just... There's a lot of instances of games that everyone knows this particular board game. There's new versions coming out all the time because it's established or there's ones that come and go, as you described. Yeah, it's a really interesting aspect and something, you know, as we'll start to transition from industry slowly to, to also just the player base. <laughs> yes. It's something that I find fascinating because often I'll pick up what I think is quite an exciting, you know, new to me board game and it's like three or four years old, but it just hasn't featured in shops for that period because of um, 
you know, it, it sold out on Kickstarter and then it took another two years for that second run or third run to actually make it to retailers. And it's, as you said, QC, they're the lucky ones that, um, that have maintained, I guess, a, an interest in their, in their product versus ones that have met perhaps not, um, because something else has come out and sort of stole the thunder. Uh, and it'll be just really interesting to see how it develops because, uh, as a player, there's also the element, um, you know, we talked a lot about in previous episodes, preservation of video games and how that's kind of benefited from the digitization and the digital distribution where, you know, even if we stopped making discs of, of say, Neo Automata or something, I can still go on to PSN or, or Xbox, you know, store, Microsoft store, Steam and download it. So it's sort of, in many respects, infinitely reproducible uh, at a consumer level. Whereas, you know, for a board game, I can I can miss out and uh, then I either have to buy it secondhand or, or not. And I think that's probably part of the reason you're, uh, or both of us, but just certainly you to a much greater extent, collect board games is, you know, there is that risk that it's gone and unless you know someone that has it, you're not going to get a chance to actually play it. I don't know if that drives a bit of your, your habits in terms of why you do collect uh, the games you do. Yeah, for sure. So... There, you know, there's this huge feeling of FOMO, and to you know to some extent that drives the Kickstarter as well because with Kickstarter you never know whether you're going to be able to get the game afterwards, whether it's going to make it to retail. And what I have found is that the best games you know that that get funded in Kickstarter do get picked up and are available later. So that has been a bit of an evolution in the industry and part of the you know, and part of the result of it becoming a lot more popular, a lot more mainstream, is that it's a lot easier to get games in Australia, to get board games in Australia now. So that's a you know that's a big difference between video game and board game distribution. That because there are these big bulky things, if they you know if they aren't going to sell, then sometimes it can be really hard to find them here because people don't want to ship them overseas. Whereas with a video game, obviously, especially if it's digitally distributed. I can log into Steam and download it from anywhere, but the but yeah, like so the 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 scarcity that comes from board games being a physical item is you know so unless you have your evergreen popular games like your Catan or your Ticket to Ride, they're always going to be in print and people are always going to be buying them. But the more niche hobby games. You know, they, they get overshadowed by newer things, and it can be really you know difficult sometimes. You find out, especially if you're getting into the hobby later, and you find out about a great game that someone says, "Oh, did you play this game? You love you'd, you'd love it," or you know someone shows you a game at convention, you really want a copy of it, and it can be really really hard to find a copy because you know the games are out of print, and you know if people don't sell them, or if the demand is really high obviously it's you know really hard to get a copy of one for a reasonable price so there are things like when um things go wrong between a designer and publisher or um you know with licenses so there are games that are so glory to rome is a really good example of a game mm-hmm. that's hard to get hold of that is you know, really really sought after there was a basically a, a kickstarter went wrong and no one has the license to publish this anymore, in, or in English anyway. The cop- so the copies of copies of the most recent edition are selling for you know three hundred dollars and more these days for a card game because no one can find it. 
Yeah, so, and definitely having come into the hobby only a few years ago, there have been games that I've really wanted to play, and some of them I was lucky enough to, you know, be able to wait for a reprint, so after several years, someone did publish a new edition of it, and some of them I still haven't got hold of, so, and the more niche you go, the harder that is as well, when you start getting into your little Japanese indie board games, for example, because uh, that's a thing in board games as well as in video games, uh, it's much harder to get. <laughs> but it's much harder to get your hands on a um your know, a dojin Japanese board game that got like you know that had two hundred copies made by hand, uh, and was sold at a game show in Tokyo, than it is to download one from a Japanese website. Yeah, I'm still trying to track down. I'm not actually trying. This is a bit of a joke, but uh. Uh, at the Parks and Recreation, they had like this fake board game called the Cones of like Dunshire or whatever it was, and then they didn't actually, they kickstart like... that? Yeah, well they kickstarted it, and then it just seems to have gone nowhere. And so there's like a few copies floating around, and they'll sell for like a thousand bucks on eBay or whatever. And then um, and there's YouTube videos of I think um Board Game Geek or somebody reviewing it, but uh yeah, it doesn't seem I don't know if it's ever coming out or if it's just in weird limbo hell with NBC, but yeah, like a, a good example of um how things can kind of exist and then just not exist at the same time um for any um you know reasonable person uh, who wants to not pay ridiculous prices for it. Yes, and unlike video games, you can't just find an illegal ROM and emulator and play it. Well. No, no. You... I mean, to be fair, I'm still trying to. I'm like, I'm, I'm still trying to find a reasonably priced copy of, you know, Elven Age original, um, and it just goes up and up and up. But eventually, one day, maybe. Mm. Well, we've talked a bit about the pros and cons from, you know, now a buying of board games perspective. But now let's get a bit onto onto playing board games and what sort <laughs> we're, of. We're only forty minutes in, and we haven't spoken about actually playing them. No, I, funny enough, I think this might be a long one. We'll see how we go. You know, because obviously, again, all three of us have probably a stronger childhood history of video games, I would say, and, and leading into our, you know, adult years as well. And then it's, it's only been the last seven or so years, QC and I have gotten more into board games. And these days when friends come over, you know, sometimes we'll play, you know, Smash Brothers, but more often we're going to play, you know, something of a, of the board game variety. And I want to get into why maybe that is uh, and what why it's more appealing I might throw to you first, QC, before I give my own thoughts as to sort of what has appealed to you about playing board games more than, you know, say video games from a from a multiplayer perspective. Um, so I think from so from a multiplayer perspective, I think it's really a social thing. If you, you know, if, if we're playing Smash and we're sitting around, sure, we're you know we're yelling at each other or whatever, we're having some kind of interaction and screaming about how someone just knocked someone off a platform. But we're all staring at a screen, and we're not really engaging with each other. We're engaging with the... I feel like we're engaging with, you know, the characters on the screens, maybe, but not on each other as people. If I'm sitting around a table playing a board game, I'm paying attention to my cards or my bits or the board, but I'm also paying attention to the other people and what they're doing, and I can have a chat to them as well. It's, you know, it's, it's not necessarily as frantic um it, i mean it can be but it's not necessarily as frantic and it's 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 more of a social activity i feel like i'm hanging out with friends and playing a game rather than i'm playing a game with friends if that makes sense yeah it does and i 100 percent agree with you you know there's a bit more chat and banter going on 
and you are talking more directly to the people, even if it's just to explain what you're doing as part of your turn and the moves you're making, um, which makes it feel a lot more conversational than a video game might be, where you're, you're sort of, as you said, reacting to what is happening and what you're doing on the screen. So I 100% agree. You know, Brendan, I don't know, is that something you sort of felt particularly, say, in your, your Warhammer days? There was a lot more of a, being a big social gathering that goes on for a few hours when you had a match or whatever? Or Oh, exactly. And I, I agree with both yourself, Zach, and QC in that I think it is that social aspect that does differentiate board games to video games. And I think one of the big instances where you see this differentiator is in showing someone how to play a board game. Because when it comes to showing someone how to play a video game, yes, some games will have tutorials, but a lot of multiplayer games, a lot of online games, it's expected that, let's take League of Legends, for example, it's expected that you'll play the tutorial the game forces you in, and it's generally a very bare-bones tutorial, and you might spend 20 minutes doing that. And then it's expected that, oh, now, now you know enough of the game that you can play with all these people that have might have be a lot more experienced than you. Yes, online games like that try to put in level caps and the like to try to segregate players of different skill levels, but we all know that is a very imperfect system for a variety of reasons that I won't go into here. Whereas for board games, yes, you can have someone you're playing a board game with. There might be someone in the group that has brought this board game along and they've played this board game, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 times and they know it at the back of their hand. They know all the mechanics. They know all these strategies they can play the board game with. I, I have a friend who is really into Twilight Struggle and it was a very similar phenomenon when he showed me how to play. He beat me every single time we played. But the difference is that that person who's very experienced can show you how to play the board game. They'll know all the rules. They can take you through. And it's a lot easier to do that than with a video game, I find, anyway, because you have that face-to-face aspect to it because you can... It's not a programmed instance. It's not a programmed game. You can go back. You can have house rules. You can mix things up to make it a, to ease people into the experience. So, yes, there's some very archaic board games, but I think for the most part, it's a lot more. It can be a lot more accessible and it's a lot more social in many regards. One thing I really love when you know when you when you're talking at showing people how to play a board game, uh, one thing I really love is finding a board game that someone is going to enjoy and you know being able to you know, show them the game and the things they'll like about it and then be able to enjoy that experience with them because I can recommend a video game to a friend but in the end and they'll go off and play it and they'll come back and say oh I like this about it and um, I didn't like this about it but the engagement isn't the same uh, as if I'm actually playing the game with them and you know there are some multiplayer video games I can do that with but on the whole um, I think you know I'm, I'm much less likely to be able to share the experience in the same way as when I can bring someone a board game and say hey I know you liked this game or you're really into this so I think you're going to enjoy this and then just see you know, see that see what that's like and play it with them no I 100% agree um, and probably the other element I think that makes board games more appealing uh, to me, from a social perspective, is uh, even the ones with some of the more complicated rules, I find it's just typically easier to get people to understand them. 
or at least there's more options of games that aren't compli- so complicated that it's it's the hurdles too high for me to get them to understand what needs to be done. Um, I think partly, you know, just due to the fact that you are interacting with physical objects that, you know, work in reality, if that makes sense, and the reality that we all live in. You know, we all, you know, know how to roll a dice. And even if we haven't rolled a dice before, we can roll a die, we can figure it out. You know, we know how to flip a card. We know how to move a figure around a, um, a, a cardboard, you know, piece uh whereas you know video games if i think like you know like i gave someone super mario brothers like new super mario brothers you or whatever it is and we play together and you know that's their first time playing a, a side scrolling game they learn it they play it they get used to it um and they have a good time uh and then next week i say okay let's play you know little big planet you know three or four whatever the latest one is uh and hand them a completely new controller and they, they have to wrap their head around that first and then secondly you know, they go and do what they think works in Mario and they do a jump, but up oh, the jump doesn't quite work the same way. The physics are a bit different. It, it's just got this extra sort of hurdle of having to understand the video game world and its rules uh, that aren't ever like explained to you uh, versus knowing, you know, how the core pieces all just function just because they are just inanimate objects that we can all interact with. And it's just understanding the rules uh, that overlay and make the game work. And also just do it at a pace that's a lot slower. Like you're not having to react to stuff being thrown at you on a on a screen. Uh, you know, if something, if you trigger something in a board game and it makes this happen, you can actually like take a step back. You can slow down and say, okay, let's talk through how those rules interacted to make this happen. And you can make the concession of like, okay, you didn't understand that was the consequence. We, you know, we'll let you take that move back and you can do something else because... Uh, well, if you're being, in my opinion, a reasonable player, um, some people will be very hard-nosed and force you to keep your decision. But, um, you know, I think that's a big benefit to getting someone into a board game. And it's why, you know, I can get a game of maybe not everything, but something like Codenames happening at my at my parents' house uh, amongst us all because uh, it's just they can understand that a lot easier than they could even something like Jackbox, which they might struggle a little bit with. Um, yeah, I think the the you know, the physicality makes it you know make, makes it both more engaging and more accessible uh, because you know for accessibility obviously if you said everyone knows how to interact with physical things but also you know you see something being played you see a a board game being played and it's this actual thing that looks colorful and has cool towers or cool bits somewhere on the table and you know it attracts you know it attracts people wants you know people want to get involved they want to know what's going on and it's familiar to everyone because you know everyone's played um, some kind of board game they played Monopoly they've played Scrabble they played Candyland at some point so you know it's familiar and I think the same thing so so, the, so I think you know similar things apply with um with video games that you know use those peripherals so uh, my, my favorite video game is Rock Band, and I think part of that is that I can play it in the same social way that I can a board game. So anyone can sit down and play it. It's pretty easy to see, you know, to, to figure out how the controller maps to the screen. Uh, there's no weird thing you're holding with a whole bunch of buttons. It's just hitting some drums. So I think you know having that you know, that mapping you know makes it accessible in that way um you know in in much the same way as board games 
So one thing I want to talk about is the, I guess, influence board games have had on video games because it's not insignificant uh, and it's probably something that maybe people don't always appreciate or realize. Uh, you know, obviously it makes sense that board games existed prior to video games and probably inspired and uh, were really, you know, informative in, in those early game designs. I mean, not that it's a board game, but obviously you look at Pong and that's directly you know, taking the concept of tennis and the rules of tennis, which is a game, and applying it into video game form. And we certainly saw other early examples of like, you know, card games being transferred, like Solitaire example, into into a video game format, chess, etc. Mahjong. It sort of goes above and beyond that. <laughs> yeah, Mahjong. You know, these These real classic hundred-year-old games, really, um, making their way into a digital format because the rules existed. It was just about digitizing them. 3D Pinball Space Cadets. That is the classic. Ah, yes. On, the, on my Windows PC. Yeah, in school, I remember everyone taking turns on the on the school. Like every room, every class had one computer and it was just like playing on that. It was, um, that was good times. But like, yeah, if we look at, you know, today, certain genres, particularly like I would say RPGs, are pretty much just stemming from the concept of tabletop RPGs like Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, and they've, you know, gone on to almost set the standard for things like you know what statistics you have you know your like intellect your you know power etc all those kind of terminologies derived from D or other similar games and have really sort of continued to have their roots very prevalent throughout you know even to today right and, and it's not i'm not just talking about the games that actually feature the brands from the board game space you know i'm, I'm just talking about video games in general again brendan i don't know if you as our rpg aficionado have uh more to add to that to that point (laughs) i think the rpg genre wouldn't have existed without that tabletop format without things like dungeons and dragons even the japanese offshoot the jrpg which in a future episode we'll hopefully discuss in more detail but there's clear links between your tabletop pen and paper dice rolling rpgs and those video game RPGs as video game JRPGs. And you see it in big games like the recent announcement of the remake of Knights of the Old Republic. The original Knights of the Old Republic on Xbox and PC, the combat system in that game was literally taking an edition of D&D and translating that into a video game. Yes, there's other design elements that go into creating a video game that you don't have to worry about in a board game in a tabletop experience but they were in some ways translating those same mechanics into a video game and then expanding upon that base and there's plenty of other games that you set video games coming out all the time that very much heavily influenced or inspired or taking mechanics from its tabletop brethren you see things like crimson shroud that came out on the 3ds about or eight seven eight years ago now which was very much a tabletop game translated to a video game. There was that, uh, you'd be able to tell me what it's called, Zach, but that card game that was recently announced, the Yoko Taro one, is it something Isle or? Uh, Isle of Voices or something like that, yeah. Is an RPG card game that's a video game, and I think even when they first announced it, there were some people that were a bit confused, thinking, well, is it a video game, or is it? Is he actually creating a physical card game, or... Is it somehow merging the two? It turns out it is a purely digital experience, but 
there's a lot of crossover and overlap that are happening and it's a very symbiotic relationship particularly in the rpg genre i think you're exactly right i think in previous decades it was probably some other crossovers when they brought things like chess and mahjong and solitaire to the video game space and pinball but i think now it's very much it depends on genre to genre and that role-playing game genre is one that has never really lost its roots in that early card game, tabletop, war game, pen and paper, ancestorship it has. Just to clarify, looked it up. Voice of Cards, The Isle Dragon Wars. Oh, we so, had enough yeah, of the know. words to join it together. <laughs> Close enough. <Yeah. laughs> I think it's really interesting to see how those tabletop concepts translate into the digital realm and how they can then be extended. So I think no one's going to argue you know, when we say that the you know, having RPGs in a digital space has meant we can, you know, really has given those um, combat systems, for example, just you know, a chance to really evolve and, you know, and, and do things that we can't really do on paper just because it's too complicated. And I think there's, you know, there's a, there's a lot of that coming through recently uh with a lot of those with a lot of the deck building games we've been seeing um like a lot of the deck building video games we've been seeing taking that concept of building a deck of cards uh that's been in tabletop and um you know tabletop um, games and board games for a while and you know and, and being able to extend that you know in various ways combining it with classic you know, video game mechanics and also just you know doing things with the, the actual you know deck building and card building things that we're just limited by in a physical world. Yeah, I mean, another really obvious but good example is um, the Mario Party games, right? Where they're literally a board game for, the, you know, the core overlay, um, roll dice, move around the board, etc. But then the mini games primarily are things that just could not be done in a board game capacity without having like a, I don't know, like a box as big as an entire, you know, dining table with with different mechanics and and bits and bobs to sim, you know, represent a hundred, two hundred different types of uh, miniature experiences. Um, you know, there's certainly ways like that to take these core concepts from a board game world and then uh, flesh them out or add to them in ways that only video games can. And we, yeah, I think we'll continue to see that going forward most likely for for probably the rest of rest of the video game industry's life uh, i'd suspect but probably what's interesting is to look at in this era is is that we're seeing more and more board games you know we obviously talked about that in the early days there's obviously been a lot of board games that have been reproduced in video game form a lot chess you know it's probably got thousands of iterations um solitaire etc but these days we're seeing more and more modern board games having to basically have a video game version of themselves. Uh, and I think that's really been exacerbated over the last two years with COVID and the fact that we haven't been able to physically see each other safely. Uh, and so we can't play the games we want to play, um, <laughs> you know, together. And they don't work over Zoom or virtual call, all of them. Some of them do, some of them don't. And so it's driven a lot of companies to either, you know, start developing their own versions of their games and their own clients or adopting these platforms that we have like tabletop simulator game arena and use you know put versions of their games on there or if they're not doing it the fans are doing it and they're making their own digitized versions of their games 
Uh, I might throw to you, QC, on this because I know you, you know, I, I see you play a lot of these, you know, a lot more than I do um, online. Uh, and I'd be keen to get your view on that space at the moment and how it looks and and um, some of the good and the bad that you've seen over the past few years, uh, yeah, exploring. Yeah, so obviously it's it's gotten huge over the last couple of years. So I remember back when we first went into lockdown around the world, people were asking where can we play board games online? And there were people making lists, and these things had existed for a while, but they were very much um, in the space of enthusiasts. There were, we, you know, I really, really like this game, and I want to play it with people all over the world, or um, I have, you know, friends on the other side of the planet, and we want to be able to play a game. Uh, and, you know, there were, there were limited options, so there, you know, that we had some dedicated you know apps um for versions of certain games and there were a couple of websites that had implementations you know of games as well um that were more interactive but you know the the platforms weren't super popular and some of the web-based ones especially had some trouble as the pandemic was starting and everyone was suddenly jumping onto them uh because they couldn't handle the influx of traffic and so I think there's a lot of publishers investing uh, in these options for their own games now. So there's um, been you know, a, a few more apps and standalone digital versions of board games. But there's also just a whole lot more digital versions of games coming up on the web-based um, platforms. Asmodee, which is the you know which is rapidly gaining a monopoly over the board game publishing world has bought Board Game Arena, which is one of the main web-based platforms and um, you know, has been putting more games on there. So previously, this was a, you know, it was very much a community-run effort um, and you know, with a lot of volunteer developers working on board games, you know, to put up, like board game implementations to put up there. And so it's, you know, definitely a whole new, you know, a whole new space for, a large, um, you know, a, a huge um, mainstream publisher to have bought that site. You know, turned it from this, you know, really grassroots effort to, you know, something that is part of that conglomerate. And then the other one you mentioned, Zach, were the the more sandbox platforms, so Tabletop Simulator and Tabletopia. That, you know, a lot of people using, you know, getting into these. And again, there's official versions so you're seeing a lot of publishers you know putting out official versions of their games into these platforms and then there's the workshops so you know the fans really getting into it and putting those games up and programming them and the interesting thing about something like tabletop simulator is that it's designed to basically be everything you can have in the real world so you know you have a real table and you can flip the table <laughs> which I have done Best feature. on more than one occasion, but what you, you flip physical tables? Oh yes, that too. I have also done this on more than one occasion, but <laughs> yeah, and, and so you know, from being able to flip the table to um, you know, to pick up a single token and put it somewhere, um, you know, the idea is that anything that you could do in real life, you can do on the simulator, and this you know, this really interesting concept because. I actually don't like using Tabletop Simulator. I find it difficult to use and to control, but I love the idea that 
if I can't play, you know, I would much, much, much rather play a game in real life. But if I can't play a game in real life, then even if there isn't a dedicated, you know, perfect interactive implementation of it somewhere, I can still play it in Tabletop Simulator. And if it's not there, I can make it and import it into Tabletop Simulator. I can, you know, make that deck of cards and bring it in to the game and um, put it on that table. Yeah, one of my favorite Tabletop Simulator experiences was playing um, Guess Who with... um with someone and uh the person had swapped out the characters with like animal crossing amiibo pictures and cards and that was you know that was a cool thing to see like oh yeah you can sort of take these pre-existing board games and modify them pretty pretty quickly and uh to give yourself a bit more variety particularly you know i play a lot of um games like code names and just one and so getting fan made um word packs or picture packs or whatever it might be is super cool but it's also interesting, as you said, the real life physics, or as close as you can get to real life, I suppose, as, as their budget allows, uh, is really an interesting element. Because I was uh, again, I watched a lot of board game panels at PAX this last weekend, uh, and obviously a lot of uh, designers have had to turn to Tabletop Simulator for their playtesting because, uh, well, there's been no ability to travel and go to places and and get random people to play your game uh, in the last couple of years, uh, which has obviously been very frustrating. But certain games have really struggled because their game is basically, you know, centered around actual real world physics. You know, I mean, you know, imagine Jenga, right? Like, obviously, we've got virtual Jengas, but none of them necessarily work exactly one to one with how they real life Jenga works in, in for us in real life. And these are probably games that are a bit more complicated than Jenga, but have similar considerations that need to be made. And just the feel of the game as well. It's a difference between playing real pool and playing one of the many pool simulators. Uh, there's not; It doesn't quite feel the same. Yeah, I mean, I can bowl a perfect 300 game pretty consistently in Wii Sports, but I cannot in real life, <laughs> to say the least. Um, they're, they're not the same thing. But at least that tabletop simulator, having that sort of element is good because it at least gives, you know, for, rather than sit idle for two years, if you are someone making a, a game that has physics um, as an integral element of it, you can sort of do some stuff with that versus, uh, you know, again, something uh, a bit more scripted um, can, that can translate very well to Board Game Arena or uh, other sites like that where you don't need, you know, the physical pretending you're actually at a table and having someone pick something up and move it around and, and rolling dice that way is um, is useful, I think, to have that option is all I was going to say. I agree. I, I have found it a really good option for board games, particularly in the last two years. If you have the urge to play a board game with a friend and, well, you can't go over to someone's house at the moment, naturally. It's a good alternative, but also echoing QC, it, it just isn't the same. The experience, it feels a bit hollow, and I think it goes back to what we were saying earlier about how board games have that edge over video games because of the social aspect of it. Because you're having this experience with other people face-to-face, you can see their reactions, you can interact with them directly, and of course you can play via Tabletop Simulator, you can use Discord, you can use Skype, you can use whatever online platform to talk to people um, digitally, you can interact while you're playing these games, but it's not the same experience in it's not as enjoyable I've found because I've played some mm. board games using tabletop simulator that I previously played face to face 
I have a group that does a Pathfinder campaign and that's been purely via tabletop simulator since it started at the start of last wow. year when the pandemic first um well started spreading across Australia. So mm. it's been enjoyable, but it's not the same and that, that campaign has dropped off a bit in the last couple of months. And I think that might be one of the reasons in that it's it wasn't like we were organizing or every Sunday or every second Sunday or the first Sunday of each month we're going to get together and play this. It was very much more ad hoc because it is a digital platform. It is more flexible. So sometimes you fall into that flexibility and things can go astray. I've had this really interesting experience where we've gone back to video games in the pandemic. So when, you know, again, when the pandemic started at the beginning of last year, uh, one of my friends set up a weekly board game night and so there are a couple of people who are in Europe and, and a couple of people who are here in Melbourne. And, and so we found a time, you know, found a night that worked for all of us on a weekend and we'd been playing board games via, you know, various versions of these, you know, online offerings every, you know, every Saturday night for the last year or so, well, year and a half, I guess now. Yeah, and, and we kept that going. But we found that after a while, like you know, like like you were saying, Brendan, it, it kind of starts feeling not quite right. Um, and for us, I think it, it just felt like it was getting a bit old. We weren't getting. We we had our Discord chat every you know every every week as we were playing, but it just didn't feel like we were you know we were getting that social interaction out of it anymore. So we decided you know we wanted to try something a little bit different just to change up a bit, and we've switched uh, you know we, we switched back to video games which you know we hadn't really been doing in this group before because especially with co-op games we we found that while we were still physically separated uh, yeah, and we're just communicating over a um you know over a mic anyway like games and co-op games especially are giving us more of that you know kind of social interaction you know that feeling of having to work together you know, more than the board games were. And we played a few co-op board games too, but often in co-op board games, the idea is not to communicate. So part of, you know, part of the you know, part of the challenge in it comes from you're trying to work together, but you don't know what other people are doing or can't, don't know what other people have. And so that versus something like Overcooked, we're all running around together trying to you know trying to get everything working but we know what everyone else is doing and we can like you know yell out at people what we need or um so we've been yeah so we've kind of retreated to couch cop kind of games so we've been playing overcooked and lovers in a dangerous space time played some uh, we played some monaco recently and even games that aren't necessarily co-op but um just something that's a little bit different you know we've been playing you know, some of those as well so we've kind of you know like as board gamers, we've kind of, we've kind of like you know retreated to this video to the video games after a year of online board gaming. Yeah, no, I I agree. I mean, these we I've definitely at the start tried a bit of you know tabletop simulator and stuff, but I often have now reverted to you know your, your Gardic phones and scribble IOs and that kind of stuff. Well, you know, again, Jackbox we talked about in previous episodes as great experiences online and work quite well because they were sort of designed for that but also i think one of the issues i've encountered is it's been really hit or miss in terms of just the functionality of some of these board games some of them I, I, an example of one that 
has been the platform works well is the fairly recently and maybe the last few months released virtual code names uh, official one from the from the company that puts out code names i forget what it's called um c something anyway uh, and that works well like it's it's a good platform it doesn't have too many issues it just functions as you would expect that game to work uh versus um i know qc we once tried a, a i think a fan made just mm. one which is so many glitches and it just it was half the battle was just having the system work the way you would expect it to work um which to be fair fan made so i'm not expecting it to be perfect but then there's others like uh katan universe where that's you know again officially licensed game from one of the biggest board games ever and just doesn't work half the time and you know it glitches out you know me and the other players have a completely separate board we're playing on and and like somehow that's interacting but like we're, we're making decisions on things that aren't the same and then we realize you know five minutes in why everything looks so odd uh and it's just been really frustrating to to not know you know which ones are going to function as you will you know to a standard that i think is acceptable versus other ones which just are broken and it's not functioning it just they're not getting enough time money or effort put into them despite sometimes being um again officially licensed from pretty massive companies mm. um as modi uh as you mentioned it's a bit of a monopoly or a conglomerate but they've even prior to buying board game arena they've probably one of the better ones in terms of investing in their like as digital offering uh, on a number of platforms and stuff that worked fairly well in comparison to the to the physical one. So I just, I'll call that out there as a, as a plus for them, I suppose. I think it's important too to remember that, as we mentioned earlier, you know, what we think of as big board game companies are really not on the same level as big video game companies. And when and, and often mm. those, especially as often those digital offerings are an afterthought, they're not really their focus. And so you know, the amounts of resources that they can put into them is often not that high. And so, and it, and it ends up being, you know, this, I, I think, I wonder if there's some kind of cycle here because often I will go on Steam and there'll be a, you know, I'll look at the reviews for a digital version of a board game that I really love. And the reviews will be mostly negative because it bugs out all the time and it crashes and doesn't work properly. And I'm not going to, you know, I'm especially like, um, if it's something I have to pay for, I'm not going to buy a digital version that doesn't work and that people aren't going to want to play because it doesn't work. Uh, and so, you know, I guess it comes to cycle because if people don't buy the games because they're buggy, they're not going to put more resources into um, making the games better. They're just going to be like, oh, people don't want to buy digital versions and they're just going to not make any more. So, so I really do like the idea of having these the, the platforms that, games can be implemented in you know, some some of the digital versions work well and some of them are very pretty and flashy but i'll be honest if i want something pretty and flashy i will play a video game that was designed as a video game i don't need my digital board games to be flashy i just want them to work you just want those core mechanics there that you can enjoy yeah and it's why i mostly stick to board game arena because like I said, a lot of those are community developed and people, um, you know, the people who work in them care about the games. So they will fix things when they don't work. And, and, and you know, it, it will work on anyone's computer as well. I use a laptop most of the time. And, you know, being able to just, you know, run anything in a web browser is super handy. Now to go the other direction, uh, and probably something where we've experienced less of, but it's probably 
worth having a quick chat about is we, we, we've been seeing, you know, an influx of uh, video games transition to board games. And I don't just mean, you know, Monopoly with Mario slapped on it, even though those exist in multitudes as well. Uh, I'm talking about, you know, we've seen Kickstarters for... Uh, and delivery of uh, now of you know like say the from software games like dark souls and bloodborne have gotten board game iterations and we've seen you know mega man has a board game uh things like that have have certainly uh come to for you know to to the market in the last you know five ten years i'm so keen for Saju valley like we are finally getting it in australia in january and i am really excited to play the board game i don't know if i love the board game but i'm really excited because i heard it feels like Saji Valley as a board game and I want to see what that's like. Yeah, well I mean that's what I'm curious about because I I've dabbled in a few uh, you know video game adaptations into board games and some of them uh very few of them feel one to one for example obviously uh cuz it's just you know how would you make Dark Souls work in an actual board game unless it was just a tabletop RPG. You can't really. Uh it certainly has themes and elements and in some you know personally i actually enjoyed the board game more because i don't actually like dark souls all that much <laughs> but but uh it, it's it's more thematic have you rolled dodge in a board game uh just, you just push your your little figure out the way and hope it rolls <laughs> otherwise it falls over and the, the the monster hits you whereas some of the ones i've probably enjoyed more have been like the minecraft i forget what the subtitle is biomes, and yeah. biomes or something like that yeah uh even though, again, it's definitely not recreating a Minecraft experience. Um, it's just a fun board game with some themes from Minecraft that help tie it in together uh, in, a, in a bit of a clever way. Um, almost like, again, a spin-off, you know, like a, a Mario Kart to a Super Mario kind of level of, of differences, I guess. Um, but yeah, I, that's why I'm curious, as you said, about Stardew, because, you know, obviously it's not going to replicate one for one the, the full Stardew Valley campaign, but it definitely has more in common with the core video game it's based on than um, a lot of the other ones that I've experienced. Uh, Brendan, I don't know if you have you given a shot to any sort of you know video game to board game adaptations. Technically, I have, and it's actually due to QC because I think it would have been about 2015 at this point that she told me about this Kickstarter for a game called Empire Age Discovery, which was a rebrand of the official age of empires 3 board game that the designer lost the license to of course so he decided to reprint it under a different badge and that's one that i really enjoyed got a i've got a few friends into it over the years and it's one we still pull out every now and then and play around of but to your point it is one that really has nothing to do with age of empires 3 from a gameplay point of view it's very much it's a, it's a worker placement game it's it's a well-made worker placement game, but it's not one that really echoes anything about Age of Empires 3. There's no, there's no real focus on, well, town center building and building your town and then building an army and attacking either AI opponents or other players you're playing with. It's, it's a completely different experience. It's a really good gameplay experience, but it's nothing like the video game. So I do find it interesting that it, it can either go either way. The designers will try to, find some mechanics you can translate from the video game into a board game space, or they'll just take it as inspiration to go in a particular direction, which can be a really good direction or can be one that doesn't really do much and it just exists in a vacuum because it has that license. It's, I guess, no different to when there's licensed games that are based on movies. 
I mean, and another good example, and again, I know you have uh, a lot of experience with this QC, was obviously like the Pokemon trading card game is still massive and arguably, well, not arguably, it is basically one of the third pillar of the of the Pokemon brand, you know, video games, t- TCG mm. and and the anime and movies. Um, and you can sort of see how, oh yeah, it ties back to the original Pokemon, you know, have a Pokemon out there, uh, you lose, you know, six or four depending on which format you're playing mm. um uh tricks or, or, or prize cards which account to similar to like losing your party but doesn't function the same you know i don't have my squirtle become a blastoise mid-match um in pokemon unite now i do but not not an original pokemon and certainly i think increases the emphasis of items mm. and other elements that are less prominent um yeah i don't know if you want to chat about pokemon tcg at all because you used to play a lot more than I did, at least competitively, a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know if it's just like, you know, you just apply into Pokemon, but I'm just looking around my room right now, and um, what I just realized is that board games based on video games are a completely different genre from board games based on video games. Um, what I mean by that is, uh, so, yeah, we were just talking about licensed games, really. So, um, you know, games where we've got the name of name of a video game or a video game franchise on a tabletop game of some kind, whether that's a TCG or it's a, you know, it's a more traditional board game. And often they are, it's, it's theme. It's, you know, it's a, there's an underlying, there's an underlying board game design that doesn't have that much to do with the video game, but you found some way to relate the theme and to relate some of the concepts and, you know, hopefully put out a pretty decent video, a pretty decent board game that just happens to have some things from a video game. And that's one kind of board game that's based on video games, but I'm staring at a BattleCon box right now. And so BattleCon is, there's a publisher called Level 99 Games, and they do a bunch of, they have a bunch of games and franchises that based are, that, that are basically games based on other games. And my favourite is actually Millennium Blades, which is a CCG simulator. So it's a board game based on trading card games. But yeah, I just mentioned Battlecon. And so Battlecon, the idea of it is it's a fighting game. It's a video game fighting game in card format. And so you pick your fighter. Um, you know, each time you play a game, you pick your fighter, same as you would on the select character screen. And they have their special moves and their combos. And they're fighting on, they're fighting, you know, they're fighting across this board. And yeah, and, and the idea is that you have the feel of, a fighting game, um, you know, in this two, pl- you know, this two-player board game, and they've got a few more. They've got so they've got Battlecon, they've got Exceed, which is another one based on fighting games, and the one I just got is so it's Bullet Heart. So I think it's like Bullet Love or something, and it's based in Bullet Hell. So I haven't actually uh, it, it came in during lockdown, so I haven't actually played it yet. But yeah, the idea is that as far as I can tell, you have like new patterns of patterns where the bullets are going and where you're shooting and stuff, um, depending on your character. And again, it's a card-driven game, but it's based on bullet hell video games. Yeah, so they're, they're, they're a company that particularly, you know, focuses on a lot of those. But, you know, there are plenty more of these too. There's a Tetris card game I've seen around a lot lately. Mm. And there's, I've seen Roll and Write game. There's a, there's a Roll and Write game that came out a couple of years ago called Bricks, which is Tetris in... Tetris in roll and write form, so you you roll some dice and you draw some things on a page, but it is Tetris. And 
yeah, so we're seeing a, so so we're seeing quite a lot. There's so we're seeing quite a lot of board games that are based on video game mechanics, which kind of feels like a nice cycle from these video games that have been based on tabletop mechanics. But they really are. They really do feel like they are a completely separate genre from these licensed board games that are based on video games. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I guess it kind of comes down to, I guess, the designer and what's driving their like motivation here like is you know and I, I, I the answer is i don't know to be frank but but the ones you're talking about it sounds like they're kind of passionate video game players and board game designers so they're taking one passion and fueling the other mm. with it whereas I, I don't know for all i know the minecraft builders and biomes just came from a contract signed between microsoft and uh, whoever the publishers of the board game make us a minecraft game and you've got you know a year to do it and put it out and that that's where it came from i mm. don't know for sure that's what happened but you can see that happening a lot i'm sure or you know some cases like the kickstarted ones for like dark souls and that i'm sure that either came from an internal drive within from software or somebody came and pitched like hey mm. i love your video game here's a board game idea can we make this happen but yeah no it's it's, it's interesting and i'm just yeah keen to see how it evolves and develops I mean, one thing I saw really interestingly, and I, you know, I haven't touched Magic the Gathering in a while, but I saw they're doing this new crossover set with like Street Fighter and like a bunch of other brands, which I'm like Fortnite, I think, sorry, was the other one. And I'm like, man, that's going to be weird seeing like official playable Magic the Gathering cards with Street Fighter and Fortnite characters and combinations. I mean, we have Katy Perry and Pokemon now, so. <laughs> yeah, that was just yesterday, Katy Perry and Post Malone Pokemon cards, which is super weird, um, but also kind of cool. So yeah, I'd be curious to see how it goes. Oh, I guess my, my, my warning is just if you're a, a game player, like a video game player, and you're like, oh, I like X and there's a board game version of it, yeah, you know, still look up some reviews, watch some let's plays on YouTube because again, mechanically it might have some themes, but you might hate the board game. Um, or conversely, you might love the board game even if you don't like the video game. So it's definitely worth looking into it a bit further and not just assuming I like X, so I'll like the board game version of X. Um, anyway, uh, that's that's pretty much it. Zach is officially sponsored by BoardGameGeek.com. Go to that <laughs> website, check a review. Yeah, <laughs> well. Yeah, to be fair, Board Game Geek, I just, yeah, it's my go-to for just looking up aggregates, mm. uh, for whether it's the right call or not, it's, it steers me in a good direction. I don't know if you have a, a view on where you get your your reviews, your opinions from QC, that's maybe a bit different. I'm Board Game Geek all the way, mostly because I'm just too lazy to watch videos, and so I go looking for text reviews, so um, Board Game Geek's definitely my source for those. And yeah, mm. and I think one thing too to keep in mind if you are looking to transition from video games to board games or you know try and bring them into your life as well is that that licensed game might not always be aimed at someone who hasn't played many board games before as well. You know, which is an interesting thing to think about. You're know, wondering what their demographic is, but that was actually something that I saw brought up a lot in the reviews for the Stardew Valley board game um, that mentioned that. Yeah, it was. It wasn't so much made for brand new board gamers, and you know, and you'd get more out of it if you know you'd, you'd, you'd probably enjoy it more if you'd played some before and knew what to expect, because it is you know a bit of a longer game, you know, and a little bit more involved. And you know, sometimes if you haven't had much experience with board games, it's easier to start with something that you know that doesn't have so many moving parts to keep track of. 
And that probably transitions to a good way to finish this off, a lighthearted way. Um, maybe just throwing out some recommendations of, of for games. You know, a lot of our audience probably are video game players first. Um, but maybe some stuff if they're at, you know, a convention like PAX uh, and they went to the tabletop area that they should check out. Or if they are wanting to buy something, maybe what they should look to buy uh, and, and give a shot with their mates if they do want to explore the board game and tabletop world. Brendan, why don't you go first and then I'll go and then QC goes. <laughs> Sounds good. We'll go least experienced to most experienced. I like that. <laughs> so it, it very much depends on what sort of game you're looking for, but I definitely think some good entry-level ones I've experienced have been your probably typical ones that most serious board gamers are going to have in their collection. So things like your Ticket to Rides, things like Coup, they, I think they're a good entry point in that they have more mechanics and they're more deep than your... I guess the board games you grew up as a child, like your Risks, like your Monopolies, and even things like Carcassonne and the like, they, they have a bit more depth and they start to, I guess, edge you towards those more deep experiences. So I think those would be ones that you can easily show someone how to play and you can it can be someone that has ne- never really played board games and their only experience is something like, like a Monopoly and they can easily start to understand how it works and take it from there and then you can start introducing them to more I guess intense involved things conversely the other end of things is if you have someone who's never really played a board game but inherently likes I guess deeper things like they might like tabletop gaming they might like video games well I've always found things like Twilight Struggle and the like are good for those more I guess hardcore people that those people that might not necessarily consider board games so these aren't the you have a bunch of friends over for the weekend and you want to play something experienced, but maybe if you have a you have a close friend and you want to try something else, those deeper experiences that you can do one-on-one are also a good way to get into things. And yes, a game like Twilight Struggle is not the most simple game, but mainstream enough in that there's a lot of people who have written about it, have videos about it, played it, that it's easy to pick up. It's more or less easy to pick up and play in many ways. Oh, good, good ones to recommend. And yeah, I think I'll probably take a similar approach to you and try and divide to an extent into some categories because I think there's probably dozens or even hundreds of different types of board games, but you know, there's certainly some, some thematics across them in, in genres and that kind of stuff. Social deduction is one of my favorite genres of board games uh, and also video games with like Among Us, obviously. You know, there's a lot of the classics like your Mafia and Werewolves, um, but I think some of the better ones, Coup, you mentioned already, fantastic i love coup bit more less about uh you know hiding your role but hiding what cards you kind of have available to you in your hand um which i think is cool but also one that i love is saboteur because it's uh just got a bit more to it in terms of um building out like these kind of like pathways with cards uh and concealing your role as the the bad guy in terms of how you know do you help people get to the goal they're trying to achieve a little bit to build up some trust and then later down the track pivot to trying to block their path and i think it's good because a lot of social deduction games have a knockout element um which can be in my opinion quite frustrating if you're the first one that gets killed like in mafia and it's a game of 20 people then you're watching a lot and not playing a lot um whereas these two games keep you involved the entire way uh, for the most part which i think is good if you like word games, I mean, you've probably already got them. You've probably already played them, but um, Codenames uh, is obviously fantastic and uh, really sort of challenges your creative thinking in terms of how you would recommend, uh, or sorry, how you would hint towards a certain set of words that 
seemingly have very little relation to each other to try and get your team to guess what that word is uh, without the other team sort of, uh, well, the other team can figure it out. But, um, you know, the, the main goal is to get your team to guess your set of words first before the other team guesses their set of words. Uh, so that's certainly one to check out. And you can do free online at the moment on their website if you're, if you're stuck at home or just want to give it a whirl. I also like just one uh, for similar reasons because uh, it gets you, you know, the idea being, you know, it's kind of like celebrity heads and that one person has a word that they're associated with, but they don't know what it is. And the rest of the people have to give them a hint in the form of one word to, to guess it. But if multiple people give the same word suggestion, uh, it, it, that clue gets removed. So you have to think things a little bit differently when giving those hints to make sure you're not clashing with somebody else, which I just think is, is super fun. And then for something a bit more still kind of lighthearted but more into that sort of you know it's going to take an hour or so of playtime probably my favorite is mysterium i like it because again it, it seems complicated at first but the core concept is really just trying to give people hints about uh who a, a murderer is in a in a murder mystery kind of like cluedo uh except using these very beautiful um and abstract pieces of artwork uh, on cards uh, and again it's just a very fun cooperative game um, that you can play uh, and is you know got enough depth to it to sort of keep you know playing a few rounds and seeing things play out differently but also enough uh, simplicity that you can sort of get a wide group of people to to give a play so you know there are some of my recommendations and some of my sort of favorite genres i suppose of, of the board game world <laughs> all right qc under you feel free to go as far or as not far as you want <laughs> yeah the mic's all yours all right. <laughs> go crazy so i think so i think one thing that i like thinking about when suggesting board games to people who haven't played many of them is is to look for something that has pretty simple rules but a lot of strategy because I find those are, you know, you, you learn to play them and you keep playing them. And so, yeah, I, I, I'll keep going back to that kind of game even when I have my three-hour giant 500-bit um, huge heavy board game. Um, I will still keep going back to the, you know, to the simple ones too. So, just you know, just going on from the, you know, the party games you were suggesting, Zach. So, you mentioned Mysterium. I'm... So I I really like Dixit, which is you know, it's big little brother. Yeah, some, some I don't know sort what of call it. cousin. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's it, it closely enough related that you can use the cards in Mysterium to play Dixit, but it's party deduction without any of the extra stuff around it. It's it's just you know look at some really pretty pictures and try and read more out of it than anyone else is super super accessible plays up to 12 people and i really like that as a you know as a party thing other party games that i like that i find are really easy to get into there's uh, uh, times up and there's lots of versions of times up i picked up an australian branded version called bob's your uncle recently there's the <laughs> and telestrations which is it's graphic phone but like the original it is yeah so so it's you know it's chinese whispers with pictures and stuff and again it comes in a 12 player version which i Highly rank, recommend grabbing. And there is a very silly game I'm looking at my shelf right now called The Fuzzies. And The Fuzzies is made by the same people who made Wavelength, which is a which is another great party game that's come up on the radar in the last couple of years. But The Fuzzies is Jenga with little fuzzy balls and tweezers. And it sounds silly. It's super silly. And I 
super recommend it. Everyone I've played it with has asked to play it again, over and over again. So that's pretty great. But most of the games I play aren't party games, obviously. And so, yeah, so going back to that, you know, the simple rules of the strategy. So Azul is one that's been really popular the last couple of years. And I like to think of it as Sudoku, but with colourful board game tiles. And it's, you know, the idea is that, you know, you've got these tiles and you are just trying to fill in your board following the rules with the right colours, but you're also... So you're trying to get all the tiles that you need without getting the tiles you don't need and also denying other players the tiles that they need and trying to screw them over. So that's pretty great. Lanterns is another one that I really... So I I, I do kind of um, gravitate towards these really colourful games. You know, it's a very nice... If you played Ticket to Ride, similar idea in set collection, you're trying to pick up the you know, you're, you're trying to pick up the right colours of cards to turn in set. Uh, but you're doing that by laying tiles and matching sides. So much like if you played those like little puzzles, you had these little puzzles when you were a kid where you had to you had all the tiles that had like a different colour on each side and you had to colour match the sides. It's that, but in a board game. Uh, something I really like for just silly play if I if I just feel silly and my friends are feeling silly is King of Tokyo and you'll be really familiar with it if you played Yahtzee because you roll a whole bunch of dice and then you try and you know, match things up and um, you, know, you have a limited number of re-rolls and you are a big monster and you are stomping around Tokyo or outside of Tokyo and you are trying to you know stomp all over other monsters and score points doing so uh, it is um it's you know it's a slightly different style of game for most of the games I play, but I really enjoy it. I um I, I usually stick to games that have like a bit less direct play interaction and a bit less direct combat, and that have you know I, I guess you know different and you know, more indirect ways to score points. But King of Tokyo is a great um just bash things around. Uh, its designer is the same person who uh, designed Magic the Gathering actually. Oh, I never knew um, that. Richard Garfield. Yeah, maybe. yeah. So. He, yeah, uh, fun fact, he also designed Bunny Kingdom and Keyforge. So Bunny Kingdom is great as well. What was the Dota card game that was a massive flop? Or what is it called? That was a Dota card game? Not real, a uh, virtual one. The one Valve made, or the actual physical yeah, the card one game? Yeah, the one Valve made, he was he was a consultant on that as well. Or he designed that originally and then left the project after it launched, I think. I can't remember what Fair it was enough. called. Oh, uh, yeah. Artifact. Yeah. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, anyway. The thing that no one remembers. <laughs> Yeah, so, um, yeah, he's designed a bunch of things, but I just really like stomping around sometimes. The uh, other games that I enjoy, um, if you like, you know, if, if you, if you like the co-op, um, kind of thing, you know, you like co-op video games and you want that feeling in a board game, I love Hanabi, which is not like pretty much any other co-op game you'll play. Um, it's a card game, but, and you can see everyone else's cards, but you can't see your own. And all you can do is, you know, give each other clues about what cards they have and try and play cards to the middle in the right order. Something a bit, you know, more of a classic co-op game. Something like Burgle Brothers or Magic Maze are games I like. They are heist games. Uh, Magic Maze is a real-time game, so that's exciting as well. You cannot speak, so basically what you do is shake your fists at each other a lot. (laughs) And, like, you know, throw things, kind of like slam things on the table in front of your teammate and then you have the semi-co-op games so i'm not really much of a trader mechanic person so the social deduction stuff isn't really for me uh but one semi-co-op game i really like is between two cities where you and the people on either side of you 
at each building, like between each pair is building like a city between 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 the two of them, and your score is the lower score of the um the cities that you're building into. So the idea is to you know obviously try and get the highest score in both cities so you can get a higher score overall. Keeping in mind that your opponent could also benefit from, uh, sorry, yeah, your opponent who's next to you could also benefit from that high score. So there's only one winner, but you are building with two people. So I really love that. I what do I have? What else do I have in my list? Just a personal favorite, Arboretum, is a very very simple. Again, it's one of those very very simple games. You draw a card, you play a card, you discard a card, and in fact, I think you know, you sorry you, you you draw two cards. You you draw two cards, you play a card, you discard a card. So the rules really really simple, but it's absolutely cutthroat because you can draw cards from your opponent's discard piles, and you are trying to score, but also stop your opponents from scoring. It's gorgeous. You get to um, you know, build like there's this really pretty tree art, and you're just building up this huge like tableau of trees in front of you. That it is much 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 more mean than it looks. So that's a personal favorite. I think too that. You know, given that this is an Australian podcast, uh, we have to mention some Australian designed games. Mm, I agree. So, a couple of my favourites are so Unfair, which is designed by Joel Finch, who is from Queensland. So, I have, um, yeah, I, I'm a big fan of Unfair. It's probably one of my most played games ever, mostly because every time I see Joel, I say, hey, what new cards do you have for Unfair? And I um, and I insist on trying them out. But, you know, so it's, you know, this is a really great game where you're building a theme park and so are all your, so are all your opponents. And so, you know, you're, you're trying to build the best theme park, but you can, you're also trying to interfere with your opponent's theme parks and get some of them shut down so they earn less money and you earn more money, you can build a better theme park because the aim is, you know, to get as much money as you can, obviously. If you don't like the idea of interfering with your opponent, there is a newer, smaller game uh, that's just out called Funfair, also by Joel. And yeah, it's it's basically a it's 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 basically a um another along the same lines, but without the take that. So if you'd like something a bit friendlier, there's Funfair. Another designer uh, who puts out a lot of games is um, Phil Walker Harding, who is from Sydney. And so he's got a um he's got a laundry list of really really great games. If, so Sushi Go is one that is often on a lot of these beginner game lists, um, like things to try first, which is, it's just really cute sushi and other Japanese food, and you're trying to collect the right sets of them, and um, you know, so you're drafting, so if you've played Magic and you've, you've played a Magic draft, it's the same kind of thing. So you're just trying to draft, you know, you're, just, you're just trying to draft sushi into your hand. One of my personal favourites from him is uh, Kaka, uh, which is a tile laying game, and so um, it's got lots of beans and gold and stuff in it. Yeah, and yeah, I would also recommend Baron Park, which is yeah, if you're used to if you like Tetris and you like those kind of tile laying games and bringing everything together, and you like doing that with cute bears and also koalas because it has koalas in palm trees for some reason. I recommend that, but. What I found, the most important thing that I found when I was getting into board games, or rather the most important thing I learned, was to actually try things before I commit. So 
I made the mistake of getting really, really excited about board games after that PAX where Zach lured me <laughs> into the hobby uh, dangerously. It's all your fault, Zach. No worries. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and my mistake was that I said, oh my god, I really love board games. I need all the board games. And so I looked up a list, you know, I looked up a million list of all the first board games you should buy. And then I bought them all. And then I found that quite a lot of them I didn't actually like. So I mentioned I didn't like the social deduction kind of games. And I realized I didn't like, um, you know, there were a bunch of mechanics I didn't like. And now that I've bought a whole bunch of games, or more importantly, I've played a whole bunch of games, I've got a better idea of what I like. But at the time, I didn't realize that there were so many different kinds of board games, I guess. So many, like, you know, different feels. And so, yeah, so I got everything. Uh, it didn't quite work out for me. I think it's, you know, really important to, you know, to give them a go. And so in video games, like for video games, a lot of games have demos, um, your playable demos that you can try out or whatever. And obviously you cannot download a playable demo for a board game, but conventions are a good place if you have conventions. Obviously, though, they are only at, you know, certain times so they're super limited and so what i really recommend is checking out your local store like board game stores or cafes so a lot of those have really nice extensive board game libraries and they'll be getting like the most you know they'll be getting the newest games so people can try them out especially the stores who want to sell the games so they have nice play spaces um it's often you know like it's, it's often free or you really low cost to go in there and use their library and you know so you know, buy a drink and play a game so yeah, that's a, it's a really, really good way to try something out. And they need your support at the moment as well because they've been closed for so long that as things opened up, you know, as things opened up, as things have opened up, you know, they need people to come in and, um, you know, like help support them, give them some business and try the games. So, yeah, I, I really recommend going, trying those things out. I've made some really good friends from hanging out at those stores as well. I hundred percent agree, and even you know locally, we're seeing a lot of those stores branch into publishing. Um, obviously, in Victoria, we've got Guff uh, as a board game store franchise. I guess there's a few of them uh, who have got a Guff Publishing. I don't know if that's recent, uh, but it's it's in Liz- it's brand new. So their their Kickstarter is about to go live. So by the time this goes up, I reckon it will probably be live. Yeah. So should, what what can you, what do you know what the game's called? They're kickstarting. I, I haven't got it on the top of my head. I think they're doing floating floors. So, yeah, so check out the game Floating Floors on Kickstarter, which I will probably be up when this is um, when um, when this goes out. Uh, and the other one I was thinking of recently, are Good Games have a few stores around the country and they've got a publishing arm as well. I think they did Unfair, which you mentioned before yep. QC. They've also just launched Land vs. Sea, which I just picked up uh, from their quote-unquote virtual <laughs> exhibit hall in, in PAX. Uh, and played it this weekend, and it was a fun two-player, well, two to two to four-player sort of uh, puzzle competitive game. Um, and probably my favorite thing about it is the box and the rule book have a spot the difference set of artwork, so the, they're similar but quite a little bit different. So if you worst case scenario, you end up with not only I think a really fun two-player to four-player game, but also a, a spot the difference that you can spend some time by yourself uh, <laughs> trying to figure out what what features on one or the other. So, yeah, definitely support the Australian scene. Go to the shops, yeah. buy the Australian games if you can. And talking of good games, I'm holding a game from them in my hands as well. 
So um, they should, if you if you want a really really nice two player game, check out Fluttering Souls, mm, um, which is by well. it's good. <laughs> yeah by uh, Joel Lewis, who is from Perth. Um, super nice guy, super nice game. Yeah, and you know, work towards an Australian board game industry uh, to the least as best as we can, despite having no manufacturing onshore anymore. <laughs> but anyway, that was a really good conversation, and hopefully, has given a lot for people who love board games to think about and those who don't and are interested in to also think about as as video game players. So thank you, QC, for joining us uh, on this, this another lengthy episode of, of the Blowing Cartridges podcast. Thanks for having me. No, Thanks no worries. Do you want people to find you? Is there a place you would like to be found or you prefer to stay in the an- anonymity of, of the internet? <laughs> I'm always happy to talk about board games or rabbits or anything else. So if you want to find me, I am on Twitter um, at priority underscore Q, like a priority Q, but without all the U's and E's, just uh, Q by itself. And um, if you're looking for me on Board Game Geek, I am Driftblim. Like the Pokemon. Awesome. Thank you. And uh, if you want to find Brendan or us, there's a number of ways you can you can do so. If you're looking on social media, you can find us at BlowCartPod on both Twitter and Facebook. Uh, if you're checking us out via email, you can you can email us at blowingcartridge at gmail.com. Uh, of course, the way that gets the most attention is a Apple Podcasts review. Uh, if you want to leave your thoughts and opinions, comments there in review format, we will certainly pay attention to it and appreciate it a heap. Helps us get found uh, on all the services. Uh, and individually, if you want to speak to one of us, but not both of us, you can find me at Egorino and Brendan at Tamazoid. That's correct. Definitely drop me a line if you have anything to talk about. Tell me what RPG you're playing. Yeah, <laughs> for, they're very useful for a, a future podcast, hopefully. A bit of a tease there. Uh, until then, I'm going to be blowing some dust, not off cartridges, but off my board game collection, given um, I'm hoping to play some in the next couple of weeks. So uh, until then, catch you all next time. And thanks for joining us. Bye for now.